This is an ABC podcast. Hey there, welcome to the minefield. Try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. They don't come any more serious or thorny than what we're about to discuss today. Actually, that's not true. This isn't thorny. This is perfectly straightforward. This whole show was my co-host Scott Stevens' idea, and I'm ready to take him on because I think his perspective on this is going to be really lamentable and in need of correction. Walid Ali is my name. Scott, you ready for this? I am. What What are we talking about today? I, I think it's important to disclose this was your idea because I think sometimes there's a perception I force some of these things upon you, but actually they almost always come from you, these particular yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they come from me when I'm actually trying to pander. No, um, that, I just want to sort of no, get no, you no, over no, onto no, my No, side. no, 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 no. This is not pandering. You have no, had a true. thing about this for a little while. You've mentioned it a it couple of times. It is true. Yeah. And you're disgustingly wrong on it. But Well, a, do you really know what I think about this, though? Do you uh, actually know? It's possible I've made a presumption. Yes, I think it's probably <laughs> true. <laughs> we'll see. All right. Well, tell us what we're talking about. All right. So there are two things that I thought we could talk about over the next hour. The extent of my knowledge about this topic, I'll confess, is rather parochial and limited. I've thought about it in principle a great deal, and there's certain things, certain expressions that I know rather a lot about and others that I'm hoping, Waleed, you can instruct me. I've, I've been thinking a lot about attachment to sporting teams. So mm-hmm. what is it that makes us love a club such that one's soul really does descend when they lose or are relegated so that your emotions really do soar or sail not even when they've had a winning season but when they've won a really really contentious match maybe against an old foe yeah what are the bases what are the grounds what's the emotional networking the moral, the, the emotional conditions that makes one love a particular club in a particular sport. So that, that's one thing I'm really, really wanting to discuss because I think that's probably the basis of the second thing. Yeah. And the second thing is, given the emotional wiring, the, the emotional investment that we feel with a club's success or even failure, when is it okay to say, I've had enough of that team? I'm done with them. When are you okay to move on? Now, because I think we might disagree on a number of points, Waleed, can we agree from the outset on one very, very important point? Mm -hmm. And that's that those characters who only pay attention part of the time or who are addicted only ever to highlights and who jump on a team only when they're doing well and have failed to tarry heroically through the dark days and mourn through the dark seasons, Mm. that such people who come on only during periods of success and are almost guaranteed to then depart when that period of success has gone, that they are beneath contempt uh, and are not worthy to take place in any aspect of this conversation. They deserve no respect and no consideration in anything that's about to be said. Can we agree I think that's a generous characterization, but I'm prepared to go along with it. All right. All right. So so we're talking then about attachments to teams that go beyond winning or losing seasons that maybe even straddle relegation mm. or straddle season upon season of really abysmal performance. So we're talking about emotional attachments to teams that have nothing to do with success or failure. Is that right? 
Yes, I think that's right. I think I know what you mean, and I think that's right. Yes. Okay. In other words, we don't just love them because they always finish in the top four or no, five, no, or because no. they always make the playoffs no. or whatever. No. Okay. That's right. Excellent. Yeah. So, so if we then sort of think or have some sense about why it is, and, and much of this is just going to be autobiographical, I'm afraid. <laughs> if we have some sense of why it is that we love this team. Yeah then I, I'm really also interested because I'm in the horns of this dilemma right now. Oh, okay. You didn't tell me this was a therapy session. Yeah, yeah. When is it okay to feel, you know what? I've had enough. Okay. I, can I just ask you, when you say had enough or abandon your team, hmm. do you mean just disengage from the sport or do you mean switch to another team? Yes. Both? Yes. The second. No, no, particularly the second that maybe what I loved about this team is now more fully expressed in another. No. And I think no, I'm no, feeling no. my affections gravitate towards them. No, this is you're, – you're as misguided as I Interesting. suspected. Okay. If you're Tell prepared to entertain that notion, then we need to have a conversation and we might need to have a lot of it off air. Because okay, so, so, so hang on, Willie. So yeah. you're saying that to become an apostate from the sport altogether is acceptable? Or may, may be acceptable. It's better. People in their lives go through different levels of engagement and passion with different things in their lives, right? Yeah. So sure. I can understand, I may, I may not fully respect it, but I can understand people for whom sport is just not something that can loom large in my life yeah. at the moment. Yep. But that is a different thing to apostasy <laughs> where you – I remain engaged in the endeavour, but I switch my allegiance. The whole substructure of sport is predicated upon unchanging loyalty. That's but loyalty to what? To the tribe. Step me through this. Oh, okay, really? Tell tell me why. Which bit? The tribal bit or the the unchanging loyalty? The tribal bit, bit, because that is the thing that makes no sense to me. Okay, because I think we have to understand sport as adult make believe. Mm hmm. There is nothing – it was oh, – I'm going to Google it because I actually used the quote recently in an article and now I can't remember who said it. Um, can you hear me typing? I can hear you typing. Okay. And we're going to keep it in the show. There we For go. these people who think that you pluck these erudite quotes out of the air, they're going to finally realize the no, truth. No, this is no. – uh, Arrigo Sacchi, who's an Italian football legend and manager of the Italian team and various clubs in uh, Serie A, who said football – is the most important of the unimportant things in life. Mm. So the starting point for this is to understand that sport is unimportant, right? It works by convention. It, mm -hmm. it, the meaning that is invested in it is there by convention. It only matters who wins the game because everybody agrees that it matters. And the minute you start pulling at the thread in a rational way, about, yes, but what is the inherent meaning of a goal or a basket or whatever, then the whole thing falls apart. The enterprise just disappears. Mm -hmm. You cannot do that. You have to commit to the mythology that makes the whole thing work. Yes, we are in complete agreement. Okay. So once you've committed to that, the thing that makes the rise and fall of sport, the agony and the ecstasy of it, the tension, the drama the relief, even the humour, the pathos, all of it, the thing that makes it that is this sort of childlike loyalty towards your particular set of colours 
and all the slings and arrows and triumphs and tribulations that come with that. Mm-hmm. The moment you are allowed to try to invest it with some kind of meta meaning that exists outside this bubble of make-believe, it falls apart. The moment you can change your tribe according to convenience or taste, it falls apart. So it's oh, permissible goodness. to admire the work of, of another tribe in the moment. Mm-hmm. But to change one's tribal allegiances is something that can only happen in the most extreme circumstances. So I would enumerate them, roughly speaking, off the top of my head, as follows. One, you play for a different team. You are allowed in that circumstance to barrack for that team. Fair enough? Yep. Okay. If you have a close relative who plays for a different team, one that you support, (laughs) you may, in some circumstances, be allowed to support that team. A preferable position would be to say, I hope that my relative does well, but that they lose to my team. (laughs) That is a preferable situation. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. Yes. Your team ceases to exist via perhaps a merger with another team Uh that takes it out of meaningful and recognizable existence. Sure. Uh, what about absorption into a lucrative, super, mega, ultra Euroleague? Uh, I don't, I can't imagine that ever happening. Okay. But uh, in that circumstance, no, not, not switching tribe. You could abandon the sport. Okay. This is so that would be the appropriate thing to do. If, if something that your club has done has torn at the fabric of the sport, yes. then I think you can abandon the sport. But I have to think more about that. Would someone, would an Essendon supporter in the height of the drug saga or a Cronulla supporter in the height of the drug saga Mm, be permitted mm. to find a different team? I would say it's better that they find a team in a different sport. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. But I don't want to be overly dogmatic about this. No, this is wonderful. Well, this is everything, everything, everything that I could have hoped for. Okay. Are there any bits of this that you disagree? Okay, go on. Well, well, no, no. There's plenty that I disagree with. And and I think this actually comes down to the different ways that you and I both think about sport, but also the various – the different ways in which we ground our investment in a particular team. So I I can't proceed unless I ask you a question. Okay. So presumably – One's tribal loyalty, well, hang on, is it contingent or is it not? I mean, did it just so happen that you watched a Richmond game, for instance, when you were a wee boy and you thought that I love the colours of black and yellow? No. So in my case, and it I, was inherited. Okay, interesting. I, I don't remember a single day of my life not being a Richmond supporter. Okay. Is that the only reason for, I mean, I, I said at the start, this is going to be to some extent autobiographical. Yeah. Uh, what about Liverpool? Liverpool was different because I remember it was the FA Cup final between Liverpool and Everton, which I think was what nineteen eighty five. You're asking me. I think it was. I think it was eighty five, and my brother told me about this thing. I'd never heard about the FA Cup, and obviously a very big event because it's Liverpool and Everton in an FA Cup is is rare. And I said to ask my brother, so who do we support in this? And he said, well, Liverpool, I guess. And that was it. I'd made a decision. Uh, I then discovered years and years later that my brother didn't feel at all bound by that decision and quite fancied Arsenal. But I hadn't not <laughs> known for 15 years that this was the case all the time I'd been building up my Liverpool connection. So Melbourne what Storm you're saying... is a geographical thing. <laughs> okay, of course, yeah. For obvious reasons. Uh, Melbourne Victory is, a, again, a geographical thing. So sometimes these things select you via geography. Uh-huh. Sometimes they are handed down, like almost like genetic code. Yeah. 
And then other times you make a choice for more or less an arbitrary reason. But the choice once made is a binding choice. Oh, this is fascinating. I don't mind how you make it. All right. Oh, this is so good. There are so many different places that we can take this. Okay. You see, for, for me, the only thing outside of the things and the people that I love and the things and thoughts and activities to which I've devoted my life, the only thing that kind of rivals and excites my passions, um, the idea of enjoying a sport that I could not in a million years find myself playing. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I, I, I cannot enjoy track and field. I, I have size 14 feet. I look like a duck when I run. I, I've never been able to run. And so the prospect of watching kind of these Adonises, these extraordinary human specimens run, it just, it does nothing for me. Same with tennis. My arms are too long, so I keep missing the ball by overreaching it. Um, whereas basketball, I've, I've just always been, I mean, it took a lot of hard work, but I've, I've always loved basketball. But my love for basketball was predicated on and extended from my deep, deep, deep love for the Boston Celtics. Yep. And this is the Boston Celtics from the early 1980s, say from 1981 onwards. It's not that I didn't know of Bill Russell and Bob Cousy. Bill Russell remains for me just about the greatest player who there's ever been, not just because of his on-court leadership, uh, but also his off-court leadership, his remarkable, remarkable social justice activity. And the Celtics have always appealed to me because of being such a working-class, gritty, grimy, scrappy city. They also appealed to me because of the counterpoint that they represented to their great rivals in the 1980s, who were the L.A. Lakers. You remember the Lakers? You see, you know, for me... I remember the computer every, game. Like, yes. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> everyone, everyone in Australia, it seems, likes the Lakers because of the winning record and because of Kobe Bryant. For, see, for, for me, me, it was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yes, we see. Kareem is the other one. He's number three on my all-time list. Okay. Uh, I, I adore him. Anyway, yes. But the Lakers as a whole were this decadent flashy, Teflon smooth, non-resistant. The way that they played was too good. It was too perfect. So and the, they played, the values they embodied were not your values? The values they embodied were not my values, but also the crowd to which they pandered right. filled me with a degree of resentment. There was something about... There was contempt about, for the tribe. I had contempt for the tribe. And do you know what True. it sounds like you're identifying? They're not properly tribal. Yes, I think that's probably okay, right. So Whereas, now, now we see the the basis for true sports fandom is a certain. No, 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 no. Hang on. Well, well, to to, to some extent, to some extent. No, okay, well, that's me, what you're saying. What appealed to me most? What appealed to me most about the Celtics was the style of play. I loved the passing. I mean, they they recorded more assists per game on average than any other team. By a long shot. Larry Bird, one of the reasons that he remains quite so low down uh, in the score, all-time scoring records is because of the sheer tonnage of assists that he did. I loved that style of play. I loved the scrappy inside rebound in an era when all the other teams were already running towards the other side of the court once they missed their basket. Mm. Everything about the hard work, the passing, the scrappiness, a degree of class resentment. I'll confess, there was never a racial dimension for me. There certainly was in the 1980s. The rivalry between Magic Johnson and Larry Bird had a racial dimension to it. That was not something that registered for me. No, the Celtics have a proud racial history. They, weren't they, the, they have a the proud first, racial history, exactly. The right. first club to play an all black starting five? Starting lineup, exactly right. Yeah. So, so for me, Waleed, it was the play, it was the style of play. 
and it was the Celtic's ethos, the importance of tradition. What does it mean to be a Celtic is to play in this way. So I see where you're going. When they stop playing in this way, can you stop being a Celtic supporter? Exactly. No, right. of course you can't. Well, well, here's, here's the thing there. Here's the added factor, and here you need to tell me if this translates across. Okay. The other thing that has overtaken the NBA, which to be perfectly frank, I despise, mm. I, I acknowledge from the outset that player agency, that player mobility, that players no longer simply being chattel who have to shut up and dribble, but who have a degree <laughs> of say in yeah, shut up and drill is kind of that's the phrase you know uh, that they have a degree of say in terms of where they want to go where they want to be that has not just brought a degree of money into the game that nba basketball for a long time was kind of immune to they they just didn't quite swim in the kind of funds that many of the other sports did but on the heels of that, Waleed, the formation of what can only be described, I think, as super teams. So instead of the building up of grassroots talent. It's from constellation rookies, of stars brought together in order to Yes, win in order just to win by God. Or even not that, stars, maybe just a couple. Yeah, yeah. That has sort of irritated me for quite some time. Anybody who's following the NBA at this moment will know that the NBA is basically dominated by a handful of mega teams who I think are, are disgraces. But for me, in, over the last few months, I've watched a Celtics team that has renounced, that has relinquished all of the things, apart from a couple of players, all of the things that I loved best. They do fewer assists than any other team in the NBA. They are showboats and sooks. They are Teflon weak men who crumble at the first sign of adversity. Well, I don't care if they win very harsh or lose. I don't care if they win or lose. The best games that I've watched this year have been the ones where they basically uh, put the bench on the floor and they performed astonishingly well. They lost gloriously, but they fought for it. And okay. then I see another team. I see another team that is committed to all of the things that I loved best and have devoted themselves to that for a long time. And I'm thinking, here is a team that has renounced what I love and another, another team that embodies the ethos that has always appealed to me most. Am I promiscuous in beginning to look longingly across the borders? Depends what you mean by looking longingly. If you mean with admiration and a hope that the Celtics might one day capture something of what they have... That is permissible and acceptable. That's just natural. If what you mean is I think I'm thinking of taking off my Celtic singlet and putting on a different set of colours, then no. The, the, the morally correct response in a circumstance like this is to stand for and agitate for the reform of your tribe. It is not to seek out another tribe that happens to conform with your particular tastes in a particular moment in time. Otherwise, the whole thing loses meaning. Mm. We just jump from one tribe to another. And you might say, yeah, it's about the values and the way they play. But if someone else were to come along and say, it's about how many games they win, on what grounds could you resist that? So, so how would you feel? What would you do if not only did your team not play the way that you like them to play or the way that you believe embodies the spirit of the game, mm. but that they traded away a player who you believe embodies the spirit of that team and brought on, say, a player or two that you believe represent 
mockeries of the way that the game ought to be played, the harbingers of the internal decrepitude of the sport. <laughs> I'm being quite serious. How, how would you respond to you that? Protest, you, able- you protest, you agitate, but you stick it out. Because when it turns, then you've not only made a contribution to humanity, <laughs> but you've achieved something. The feeling will be incredible. This is coming from someone, you've mentioned I'm a Richmond supporter in the AFL. I spent my whole life watching turgid performances. That was all that was offered. It was wall-to-wall mediocrity. Until, I think, 2017, when they won the premiership, there was a stat going around that Richmond had won fewer finals since 1983 than Fitzroy, who no longer exist. (laughs) (laughs) Looks like they do in the form of the Brisbane Lions, but... But Fitzroy supporters, I think, permissible for them to jump ship if they can't go along with that merger, right? But you see, I've been through the experience. But then when the moment arrives, the feeling is magnified in a way that is indescribable. Mm. It's a feeling that South Sydney supporters would have experienced when they finally broke through for that premiership in 2014, having not existed in the competition. Imagine if at that moment you had jumped off and said, I'm going to go support Wests, where would where would you be now? What yeah. would the meaning of this of any success that were to accrue? West, perhaps a bad example. <laughs> what would the meaning of any success that were to accrue there be? I don't just mean incidentally a single season that irritates you. No, it can be an era. It yes, might be exactly an eon. Right. But the point is that you are on that journey. Interesting. The journey has selected you. This is the minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. Yes, this is RN. Or you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app, and you can subscribe to the minefield as a podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Scott, I'm excited about our guest today. Good. <laughs> Sorry, was that a preface to something? No, I, I am. But I'll, I'll tell you why. Okay. No, I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you why when we, when we have her on. Okay. Let me tell us who we got. Good. Casey Simons is a research fellow in the Sport Innovation Research Group at Swinburne University. For those of you who seem to think her name is familiar, you'd be right because she joined us, gee whiz, Casey, around this time last year when we talked about the aesthetics of empty stadiums. Is that the last time we had you on? That is the last time, yes. I feel like I'm the uh, sports fan culture <laughs> nod that you give every now and then, which I really well, appreciate. <laughs> it's just you were you were so good last time and we promised to have you back on and we wanted to make good. Well, I'm excited on. because I remember Casey saying that she was a West Coast supporter and just enters every season oh, with yes. a confidence that they're going to win the premiership. <laughs> and, of course, who won the premiership last year, Casey? Do you remember? Uh, just I've got a call coming through. I might just yeah. have to leave you guys. <laughs> anyway, I'm just hoping that history repeats. That's all. Mm, we'll see. We'll indeed, see. Indeed we will. <laughs> Casey, are there any circumstances under which someone is allowed to change their tribal allegiances? Oh, this is such an interesting topic. And thank you both so much for having me back to talk about this. I feel like this is essentially my whole PhD thesis. This is um, all the research that I'm currently doing around sports fan culture, particularly around um, marginalised groups who come into sports fandom and have a lot of issues navigating the cultural side of sports fandom with their moral compass and how they feel they belong and how they try and navigate their love for their team against some really complicated topics. So I think what we've learnt over the time when we talk about sports fandom and tribalism is this quote-unquote real fan that is meant to epitomise what fandom is and what a, a true fan does and that's showing loyalty and love no matter what. 
that tells us that no, it's not okay to ever leave your team. You have to display the behavior and the values of your team that you've chosen and you have to be part of that tribe no matter what happens. But I think we're starting to see a more sophisticated fan narrative come through that does navigate some really intricate issues and make some really bold choices that goes against this traditional notion of what a fan can be. But in my experience shows that they're no less of a fan. They still show all the uh, staple um, behaviors of loyalty and love, but they do it in a very different way. So I definitely would love to talk more about, about those things. But um, just off the top, Scott, if you want to become a Lakers fan with me, we'd be more than welcome to have you if you uh, want to give yourself to up. <laughs> no, no, see, you see, this is the really interesting thing. Um, okay, this is the closest thing that I have to a genuine existential dilemma. If one of my favorite players jumped ship from the Celtics and went to play for the Lakers. That for me is just, is unforgivable. That is a bridge too far. There can be no relationship admiration beyond that. But even more than that, if there's a player whose style of play I think is just inimical to everything I love best about basketball, if they came and played for the Celtics, I would find that a bridge too far as well. Now, here's my question for you, Casey. I don't just want to talk about me. Wherein, and, and I realize these are metaphysical concepts, <laughs> wherein does the essence of a team reside? Because that's it, not the question. Well, no, 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 no. Well, it, it is. It no, is. No, because no, no. It, the question is where it is seems the essence to me, of one's relationship with their club? No, 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 reside? no. I disagree. You can ask that question if you want. This was my question. Because um, <laughs> it seems to me that unless you are born in a place, and this is the loyalty, the parochial loyalty to a team that you have inherited. There is something, there is a connection that takes place between the person and the team that inclines your heart towards them. Now, that may be a connection that takes shape, that develops, that gets definition over time. But nonetheless, it seems to me that there is something about a fan's attachment to a club whereby the fan says that I participate in, I partake in what it is that defines what it means to be a Richmond Tiger or, or the, the essence of a team. Now, by asking the question, wherein does the essence of the team lie? It seems to me that then raises the ancillary question, which is, can there be an occasion where the team leaves the fans who embody the essence, the spirit, the ethos of the team, in which point it's not the fans that have apostatized, but it's the team itself. Mm, there's so many layers to that to unpack, but I guess starting with this idea of what what a team is and what you're actually pledging your allegiance to or you're committing yourself to as a fan, there's, like you were discussing before, you already have this fan contract in place where you buy in that this thing is meaningful. So you're assigning this meaning to something and that's just assumed throughout this experience. You have this fan contract, this has meaning therefore you are part of this experience. There's a lot of metaphors that come along with this terrain and one of them I love repeating is this idea of a football club or a sporting team being a ship and along the way you need to replace the boards of the ship, the panel of the ship, the wheel of the ship, just over time everything gets replaced. So if you replace every board on the ship, is it the same ship? And in a sporting environment you would say yes that you're continuing to build the same thing over time with moving parts, whether that's players coming in, whether that's change of leadership, 
you still have this symbol that you've assigned meaning to that means something to you. So that is your your symbol that you love that represents who you are. There's this huge part of this process that is all about self-identification once you identify yourself as a fan and how you participate around that. So like you said, it's not just watching a team play. It's how you participate in the culture. It's how you assign meaning to this thing that represents something bigger. Um, we always talk about sport being bigger than sport. It permeates so many other spaces. So that adds this layer of mysticism and metaphor and meaning that goes beyond all of this, which I think is why it's so hard for us to really grapple with these ideas of trying to leave or change or finding meaning somewhere else when we've assigned so much meaning to this one thing. So it adds that extra layer of complication, which you were discussing before, where all meaning could potentially disappear. And that's really terrifying for something that we've put so much time and investment in and so much self-identification and self-reflection. If those things lose meaning, we lose a lot of meaning for ourselves. What does that mean for me as a sports fan? If this thing I've assigned so much meaning to leaves me or I leave what becomes of me and I think for sports fans who kind of operate at perhaps more general level that's a really complicated area that they don't want to even think about which is why they probably turn a bit of a blind eye to some of the things that might complicate this experience and just focus on that fan relationship but for some fans also when that gets inherently complicated when they're struggling with feeling accepted because of their background and perhaps um, the sport not being as openly inclusive to bring them in in a way that they want to be connected with, that adds another layer of complication as well because that meaning becomes exceptionally fraught because there's that meaning of self-identification of a space they want to be a part of and they want to love the team but they're not feeling that love back. Mm. So there's so many things here that we can talk about um, and I'm sure we could talk about it all day as well. I know I could but it just goes to show, I think, that you talked at the top that sports don't matter, but they do. And I think that's essentially the, the crux of this whole conversation. See, the other element that I think is inherent in what you're saying there, Casey, is that these things only work with continuity. It's, it's a bit like being a member of, I mean, the tribal metaphor I've already used, but the member of an ethnic group or whatever. The people <laughs> who make up that ethnic group change over time because people die and people are born. But the group coheres and the group has meaning in continuity and in perpetuity, or at least as long as any of them exist, because of ancestors and because of successes. You are merely the guardians of this thing for the moment. Now, this is all very highfalutin, but within a sporting context, the same principles really are applying, aren't they? Continuity is the thing that makes it work. If mm. every season the NBA or the AFL or whatever was constituted by a completely different set of teams, right? The, the, every team existed in the AFL for one season and then next season, different teams, different names, different jumpers, whatever, even if they were the same players, even if they're same players in more or less the same configurations, the meaning that would be attached to these things would completely dissipate. Continuity Absolutely. is the thing that matters, the jumper, the, the singlet the jersey, the shirt, these are the things that in the end they they sit at a, at a supra level above all of the constituent parts, that is the players, the attributes of the players, the management and all of these sorts of things. And I think that's one of the reasons that 
sporting apostasy becomes so such a big deal because it tears away at the fabric of that continuity. But I think, Waleed, when you talk about continuity, are you also including within that tradition? Because there there are there are traditions that attend to particular clubs, aren't there? There are things that make and look, it might change over time, but for genuine innovation to take place, that innovation itself has to take place within a degree of tradition, within a degree of continuity. And it's something yeah. about the tradition that a club bears with it that retains that sense of of uninterruption from year to year. Yes, I but, I, my, but I would my, say that naturally happens, right? With some, ex- so a, a really interesting exception to this to think about would be a club like Manchester City, right? Who have been a battling club with a history, an almost tragicomic history. And then they get bought out by a Middle Eastern nation state and they have all the money in the world and now they have all the best players and they become near on invincible. So there you could say tradition has more or less been overrun by mm. money and success. See, I would find it impossible. If I supported Man City, I would find it impossible to continue to do so. Have you seen him play? You might find <laughs> <laughs> you might find it quite possible. And I, but you know what? I would respect that. But I, but I don't think I would respect you then saying, all right, now I'm a Manchester United fan. Okay. <laughs> For one thing, I don't think you could actually do it. Like, no, no, I could because for me, betrayal is just about the worst of all. Betrayal of a trust that is precious is for me just about the worst but, but of in all. The, sure, but in the Manchester City example, it's not betrayal of a trust. It's an evolution that you don't like, perhaps a revolution that you don't like. But really what they're going through is what every club goes through, that you know ownership changes hands and when the new owners come in, things change. And then it becomes really up to the fans, if they can, to define and stand for certain things that are boundaries the, the club can't cross. And in that context, Manchester United or Liverpool are really interesting examples because they are examples of very big clubs with very big fan bases that are currently shouting back to their owners about lines they cannot cross. Right? But that doesn't work if abandonment is on the table. That doesn't work if you can just pick up, you know, up sticks and go to some other club that wears a different coloured shirt. Casey, do you want to pick it, pick it up at this point? Yeah, it's interesting just thinking through that. And this idea of abandonment, I think, is particularly fascinating because like we were discussing, this all comes back to this sense of being part of this tribe and this sense of belonging. There's so much personal investment in this. And that is because this idea of abandonment doesn't factor into the, this concept. Is Once you're in, you can't leave, no matter what's happening, is what the culture tells you and also what we're increasingly seeing with commercialization and and these sort of bigger sporting leagues uh, having more and more money and, and trying to, I guess, maybe for lack of a better term, exploit their fan base for financial gain to you know, sell more merchandise or have more members or season ticket holders and things like that. That's a very real issue. But the one thing they will always point to is this idea of loyalty and this is what we have and this is what it is. And it's very rare that you get to a point where we did see this example with this idea of this new Super League potentially coming in that fans do revolt to that because fans will tolerate to a certain extent a level of mm, abuse is the wrong word, but I think it is sometimes because sporting clubs we have seen do 
abuse their power because they know that they've got the collective buy-in from their fans because of this sense of loyalty, because they feed to them that once you're in, you're in, you can't leave. If you do leave, you are not a real fan. What kind of reflection of you as a person and as a fan is that if you do leave? So there's these levers that they can pull and that comes from both sides. There's that lovely side of it, which is this sense of belonging and you're part of a team. And then there's that really overly commercial side, which can get quite toxic and can be quite Mm. dangerous. But I think fans don't realise sometimes this collective power they do have to agitate change because they are so part of that fan culture and it means so much to them and all they want is their team to succeed and to be in a really good place that sometimes agitating for that kind of change is just something that they almost don't want to do because they don't want to rock the boat or they don't want to be the one to put their hand up and say that they're not a real fan and they're not happy with how things are going. It will take something quite big and a big collective action to cause that agitation. But, I mean, personally, that's something I would like to see more of because fans really do have a lot more power than what they realise. You're listening to The Minefield. If you've just joined us, Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. We're joined today by Casey Simons, who's a research fellow in the Sport Innovation Research Group at Swinburne University. Casey, you were talking there about fan power and there comes a point where they are pushed too far and they can respond. What I would observe in that is it has to be something big, you're right, but I feel like it has to be something that's inherent to the sport. It's it's really something external that takes on such huge proportions that the fans will abandon or, or respond with visceral rage. So the, the Super yeah. League example is a good one because what that did was undermine the entire competitive fabric of football as a going concern. And so because of that, it's a transgression against the world of make-believe. It has to be an internal contradiction, I think, rather than an external contradiction, except perhaps in the most egregious uh, of examples. Yeah, and I think it also has to be something that affects the dominant fan group that, you know, we know fans are sort of sold to us as a homogenous group, but they're definitely not. But a lot of the times we still look at fandom as a dominant group, which is usually uh, straight white men. And these bigger issues usually have to have an adverse effect to the dominant group of fans. So when we see issues that come through that would affect what we might call minority groups, if it's issues of players being accused of violence against women or there's issues of racism and homophobia that affect a big group of those fans that are probably agitating for change as well. We don't see that groundswell of support from fans because it's not affecting everyone. So we only really do see this push from fans for broader change or or respect um, of their fan status when it's an issue like this that comes from like you're right, the external that threatens the the core of what that that sport or that club or um, that team stands for historically and as, I guess, a symbol of, of what it means to fans. But, it yeah, it only goes so far. It has to be big. It has to be for everyone, which is really unfortunate because we know that there are a lot of cultural issues that affect a lot of fans' ability to belong and feel this tribalism that we're talking about. And because of that, they're probably the fans that do have that license really to walk away and find another sport or team that does make those allowances for them to belong and make them feel accepted for the fans that they want to be. See, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make it a majority minority thing. 
Only because the Super League example, I think, in Europe puts paid to that. I think it's about that which is mythologically resonant and that which is not. So one of the key divides in the fan base, at least in the minds of the owners of these clubs that embarked upon the Super League adventure, was they made a distinction between the local fans, what they called legacy fans, who would turn up on the weekend and watch the game and had season ticket holders and lived in the cities where the teams were based, and the global fan base, by far the majority, like by millions and millions and millions the majority, who watch at a distance, play as their team on FIFA and want to subscribe to watch their teams play via whatever satellite dish or streaming service is currently holding the rights, okay? And the owners made a very clear distinction there. They were saying this global fan base is actually our interest because that's where the money is and they're the people we want to serve and they want to see us play all the big teams in Europe every week. They don't care about the local rivalry that, you know, you might have with, that Liverpool might have with Everton or Tottenham might have with Arsenal or whatever. These are not fans that care about when you get to play West Brom. These are fans that want to see you play Real Madrid, right? And so actually you could see, now in, it, in the end it didn't work because the global fan base didn't actually think about the game and their team in quite the way the owners thought. But there, the people that you might be describing as the fans that do have the voice were massively in the minority. But what they had was a kind of mythological resonance within the meaning of the tribe. And if we approach this topic as a topic that's really about meaning making, then I think these things start to become visible. And that's partly why the whole idea of abandoning a team becomes such an act of treachery because it, it violates all of the meaning making, even the values making that can go on within these, you know, obviously unimportant and artificially constructed worlds. Yeah, I get what you're saying there. And I do think that's an interesting distinction. But I would say within that majority and minority, there still would be a very clear majority across both of those fan bases. And it'd be interesting trying to call that global fan base a fan base if we're going sort of on these characteristics of fandom, if they're just dipping in and out of playing they're sports consumers. They're sports yeah. consumers. Would you say I'm a sports consumer if I'm waking up at 4 a.m. to watch a game? Every week? No. I would use other unkind adjectives. Okay, sure. But no, no, I don't think it's right. I don't think it's right to say that they're, they're fair weather. They're no, just, no, they're no, just global. So they have a different relationship because it, they cannot go to the game every week. They simply can't. Yeah, and I think it's a very different issue when we're talking about over-commercialisation to specific cultural issues that exclude people. I think this is, like you were saying, talking to more of the core of what that sporting league or that game or those clubs represent, which is this whole conversation we're having about symbolism and what things mean. So I think this was a really interesting example of something that speaks to the core of the existence of sport, which is what you said. But when we get into issues that, and I use minority, I guess, in a very different way here in that, yes, that group was a minority in terms of who this was affecting globally. But when we're talking about those specific cultural issues that might change some of the makeup of the fan culture um, and the behaviours and the traditions, which might have been born out of times where things weren't a bit more acceptable than what they are now or considered acceptable, I think that's probably where I was trying to go with that. It's probably a very different use of that term. But, yeah, I think this is a really interesting example of when you see something 
that attacks the core of something and fans having that collective power, even though they were probably what was considered a smaller group in the face of it, they do have a lot more agency and they are able to advocate for change. But we so rarely see it. We so, so rarely see that happen. Sorry, Casey, can I just ask you... We're so quickly running out of time, and this, I guess, is the thing that I've been most desperate to ask you, so I, I don't mean to kind of, you know, be all intrusive here. Sure, that's I'm, okay. I'm really glad you raised the issue of what I think can only be referred to as, say, the moral failings of a club or when a team, something has gone fundamentally wrong with its internal culture or, say, when a marquee player or a franchise player is revealed as exhibiting behavior that suggests a kind of toxic character that you can't wholly dissociate from his or her remarkable performance on the field or on the court. I mean, I remember quite vividly just a few weeks ago finding out that a player who I absolutely loved when I was young, I mean, I knew all the stats, I knew everything about his style of play, and then I find out through reporting that he was a a serial wife abuser. I mean, it's very, 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 very difficult then to, Mm. to, to look at his performance the same way again. Those are, those are limit cases and, and, and they raise for me sort of all sorts of moral issues. I find it difficult to dissociate a love for a club with a kind of internal culture, I guess, that's gone toxic. But I think there, there, there are other forms of say team behavior that can run against the grain of what I can only call the spirit of the game in a way that I find so noxious and so offensive that it would be very difficult for me to retain loyalty to a club that did that. I I would see it as fully much a moral failing. So so just to take an example, there are um, teams, NBA teams in the United States that don't attract the big players. They don't attract the big markets. They don't attract big crowds. They have their own tradition. They have their own legacies. Maybe they've succeeded in the past or maybe not. But they've given themselves over to the process of long-term development and enculturation of young players into the ethos of the club. And then the clubs grow up. The players grow up. They develop forms of chemistry with one another and they embody a form of erudition and elegance when it comes to the game that would have been recognizable in the 1960s and 70s. And then the big shark clubs come and pay them out and gobble them up and use them up and then spit them out once their usefulness is gone. That is a way of being a club, I guess that appeals to a huge fan base and might rack up enormous scores. But it seems to me to be a betrayal of everything that a game that I love is about. Doesn't that classify as a moral failing on the part of a club as a whole, almost as egregious as, say, marquee or franchise players being found to embody a particular form of, say, moral egregiousness that makes you kind of look at them and the club that tolerated them never the same way again. Mm. Yeah, it's so it's so difficult to navigate this side of the sports fan conversation 
and there are a few things there because I think the term um, Waleed used before was this idea of continuity, which is what continues this, the symbols and, and everything that we identify with as fans. And that's what we kind of cling to when these ideas of moral issues or moral failings, because a lot of fans don't want to navigate that. So they will hold to the, the idea and the continuation. And conversely, when fans when we just spoke about this, do try to agitate for change, perhaps to try some of these things that are part of the history or the tradition, they will be looked at as disrupting that continuation and threatening it. And we know that (laughs) driving change sometimes is really confronting and scary for people, even if it is for the better. So it is really difficult to be in that situation because a lot of the time, if you're the fan calling that out and that's been the tradition, you will most of the time be identified as a non-fan, um, that you're not going along with the spirit of the game or the tradition of the game or, or how it is meant to be and how you should be in that space. So that becomes incredibly difficult. And there are many examples of this in sport because sport permeates so many elements of our society um, and brings in so many different people and talks to so many different communities. So there are so many issues that affect many different people in many different ways. And I'm finding in the research that I'm starting to do um, in understanding these cultures, because I guess most of the time I'm talking about fan cultures, particularly in this conversation, I'm talking about cultures around men's sports and traditionally um, men's sport. So we have um, this element of these sports having traditionally hyper-masculine fan cultures surrounding them Mm. and gradually allowing people in. And the fan culture is starting to change a little bit to allow new fans in, allow women in and the LGBTIQ plus community and people of colour to really reflect the broader community that the sport is serving. But that's been such a slowly, slowly approach. So those fan cultures are still very traditionally masculine and still represent the fan cultures that would have existed decades, sometimes centuries before. So what I'm looking at now is how the fan culture is different or the same at women's sports that are newer leagues but still have a really great history but are such a different history. So we talk about the culture around men's sports being sense of belonging and inclusion and identifying with something that's bigger than yourself but has this symbol that you can hold up and be a part of and be proud of and identify with. A lot of women's sport have a counterculture to that. So they were born out of exclusion, of not being invited into those spaces or feeling that if they went into those spaces, it wasn't for them and they didn't want to comply with that type of culture that was existing there. It was too hard. It didn't align with their moral code. So they went away. They built women's leagues. They built women's football leagues and Aussie rules leagues. And we're starting to see the the fruits of that now with semi-professionalisation in Australia with things like the W League and AFLW and a few other sporting codes. And the fan culture is so different and it's coming through very strongly that there are a lot of fans there that, yes, just enjoy the game and they want to be there because they get to see men's and women's football now. Why not see everything because they love football, Um, because they're fans of women's football specifically or because they felt so excluded by the men's culture that they've walked away because it felt like it didn't represent who they were and what they stood for and now they've come back to the women's game to find their place again back in that fan culture because they feel that it represents who they are and all that time they didn't stop loving the game. So they haven't abandoned their fan identity, so to speak. They've found a new way to be the fan that they want to be. And all that is 
true, like completely true. But at the same time, there's another thing that's going on there, which is that the clubs that, to take the AFLW as an example, the clubs that, or the, the players that are playing in that, they're also benefiting from the continuity of the established tribes, right? So I have an interest in Richmond's AFLW team that I would never have an interest in if they weren't wearing that jumper. Absolutely. And I think that's such a good point because this is a space that I think we need to understand a bit more of is because it has so many elements to it. You have the elements of these existing women's clubs that were forged out of exclusion that started their own league as a breakaway league from the BFL back in the day that started from back in the 80s, particularly in Victoria and all these standalone clubs that have been spread out throughout the country that have come through, um, that have been picked up by the AFL, that have been able to attach these symbols and this continuity to them. So it's bringing so many more people in. So we have this amazing fan space now that has so many different elements to it and so many people identifying as different fans. It's not just the same, I'm a Richmond fan, I identify as Richmond, I will support everything that Richmond does. It's also the fans that are like, I'm just coming along because I'm here for this movement or I feel safe here or I've never felt safe in sport before so I'm coming here. And now we have a conversation about, well, what does fan loyalty mean in this space? Because you might have fans like yourself, Wally, who say, well, I'm more of a fan because I'm here as a Richmond fan and I support my club no matter what and everything that they do. Are you going to discount the fandom of someone else who's just coming into sport because they no longer felt safe in the men's game and they're coming back and they might not have a team, but they still have a love for the sport and the space. And I think now that's a really interesting conversation about how we identify what quote unquote real fans are and what is fan loyalty. Mm. Yeah, I think those are all really good questions. Nice. Um, mm. We are out of time. Uh, I don't know if Scott has gotten any closer to guidance on this, but nonetheless, I'm glad we did the therapy session for you, Scott. I hope you enjoyed it. Casey, thank you so much for helping us out. Thanks for having me back. It was great to talk to you both. You can send the bill to Scott, actually, um, once we get off air. <laughs> Casey Simons is a research fellow in the Sport Innovation Research Group at Swinburne University. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're done with it. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.